There's an outline sheet for the message in your worship folder if you'd like to use that. Also, if you want, open your Bibles again up to that 14th chapter of John's Gospel. We've been moving through this series, as we said, and so far in the Gospel of John, we've seen and heard that Jesus is not one to mince words. He makes clear statements of identity that cause a stir within the whole nation itself. And he also gives us stepping stones of faith to believe he truly is the Son of God. We said last week, if you've got your Bibles open, you can kind of see it there. In John's Gospel, the public ministry of of Jesus ends at chapter 12. We moved into chapter 13 last Sunday. But his public ministry ends at chapter 12. Chapter 13, we move into four chapters of material that's known as the Upper Room Discourse. He and the disciples are in the upper room. It's the night before he's to go to the cross. And without question, it's some of the most poignant and powerful teaching in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's shared only with the disciples on that night before he's crucified. A whole, I think a whole lifetime of study still might not plumb the depths of all that Jesus taught that night to those followers about living for him in an unstable, unbelieving, fearful, and bewildered world. I saw a bumper sticker on a car in front of me the other day. I was out here on Broadway at a red light. I read the little sticker on the back. It said, don't follow me, I'm lost. <laughs> and I, I kind of chuckled, and then I thought, boy, you know, in a big way, that's really not all that funny. I hope he's really, it was a guy, I hope he's really not lost. But that's likely how the disciples were feeling the night Jesus first spoke the words that we're focusing on this morning. They were feeling lost, and they were feeling as though they were being abandoned. They were troubled, they were filled with dread, they were apprehensive. In a very short time, the world of those 11 disciples is going to collapse in unbelievable chaos. Jesus had announced that one of them would betray him, that he himself would be taken from them and be put to death. The disciples were beginning to realize that that tide of, of hatred that had been whipped up against Jesus had marooned them there in that upper room like the rising waters of a flood. And the real peril of their situation was beginning to dawn upon them. They were fearful both for him and for themselves. And they were asking some really deep, uh, pertinent, heartfelt questions, questions that go right, truly, to the heart of who we are. Questions like, who can we follow and who's trustworthy? Where do we turn for answers to our deepest needs? Is there a difference between happiness and joy? And where does an artesian kind of quality of joy come from, really? Is there a difference between absence of conflict and true abiding peace? Is there a difference between optimism and hope? What are the answers to the basic needs of my life? What direction leads to true life? And these, none of these are surface questions. They're questions that every human being asks this side of heaven. And it was in that situation of crisis and alarm that Jesus talked to them about trusting him. We trust, he said, first of all, in his presence. 
Don't trust, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, he said. Now, the word translated troubled there means to be tossed to and fro. It's like a, a restless sea, just the waves of a restless sea. It could also be translated, don't let your heart shudder. Don't let it quake. Don't let it shudder. Look, I know that you trust God is what Jesus is saying here. Trust me too, precisely in these kinds of circumstances. It may look like your world is falling in, darkness is going to engulf you, but believe that I know what I'm doing, that I'm going away for a purpose. That purpose is going to be accomplished. He was reminding them, keep on believing. Stay steady, hold steady in faith. It, met, it must not be diminished just because you won't see me. I'll still be present with you. The journey can be rough. The traveling can be difficult. But the road leads home. The road leads home. So there's his presence, but also there's this tenderness that he shows them that night of his promise. He talks about it. My father's house has plenty of room. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back, take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus gave his disciples the reassurance of his constant presence and his convincing promises. And he talks about a place of residence. Now, in the New Testament, heaven is sometimes called a country, it's referred to as a kingdom. Jesus on the cross turns his head and looks at a thief that's dying beside him. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's referred to as a city. Revelation 21, John later writes this, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice. From the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's a country, a kingdom, paradise, city. And Jesus refers to it as my father's house. My father's house. In every description, there's this sense of going home. It's our Father's country, our Father's kingdom, His paradise, His city, a dwelling place for us, for us. Heaven must be huge, but fellowship in heaven can only be, de be described as intimate. One author puts it this way, my Father is there, my Savior is there. My name is there. My life is there. My affections are there. My heart is there. My inheritance is there. My citizenship is there. And I will be there because my home is there. The truest sense of all this is that heaven is a relationship that begins now. And is absolutely undiminished by death. Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He says, you can trust in my presence. I won't forsake you. You can trust my promises because I'm telling you the truth. And this is not only comforting, it is exhilarating. 
And then he continues, and he tells us about his person, truth of his person. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, imagine that night. Imagine that night. Eleven men straining to, to capture and understand the words that are coming to them in that familiar Galilean accent. But words so uncommon and so strange, the meaning simply wasn't clear. Lord, we don't know. We don't understand. And then here's, here's Jesus' statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is another example of Jesus' I am statements that are scattered through John's gospel. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, the Greek translation called the Septuagint, the name by which God calls himself in Exodus chapter 3, remember when Moses says, as he's being commissioned and called to go into Egypt to lead the people out, he says, who shall I say sent me? God's response is, tell them, I am has sent you. Yahweh, Yahweh, Hebrew, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. But in the Greek translation of Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, it gets translated as ego emi. Ego emi, I am. I am the one who makes things happen now. And it's ego emi that Jesus uses to declare and define and describe himself. I am. And there that night, he says, stop letting your hearts be troubled. You can trust my presence. You can trust my promises. And you can trust my very person because I am God with you. The uniqueness, the uniqueness of our Christian faith. Think about the world's greatest philosophers, thinkers, the great teachers down through the centuries, religious leaders, Socrates, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad. Ask yourself, what was their paramount concern? It was not to fix attention on themselves, but to win acceptance for their message. With Jesus, with Jesus alone, it is utterly, completely different. He deliberately places himself at the center of his message. His concern is not to impart some abstract philosophy or to teach some new truth, but to win devotion to himself. He doesn't merely claim to have found an answer to human need, our human predicament, our sin, our separation from God. Jesus actually claims to be the answer. Our Christian faith declares that. It says that in Jesus, God has come. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy. It depends on human tradition, elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Now, the word that the Apostle Paul uses there means plentitude, the entire fullness, full to the brim and over. The entire complete fullness. He says that that's all we need to know about God. He's made known to us in Jesus Christ. No need for speculation or search for other answers. Why search for our meaning, our meaning in life, somewhere else? So the declaration is that our Christian faith then is unique 
among the world's religions. In fact, let me say that at its core, Christianity is not primarily a religion. Years ago, great theologian Karl Barth, question answer time at Princeton, student asked him, Sir, don't you think God has revealed himself in other religions and not only in Christianity? Bart's answer, they said, was like a shock of bright lightning. He, he said, no, God has not revealed himself in any religion, including Christianity. He has revealed himself in his only son. Now, what's he saying there? Christianity at its core is not primarily a religion. It's a relationship. It's really not religion at all if by re- religion we mean some way of trying to find some God. Some years back, a few years ago, I was on a plane. I'm talking to a lady. She turned. We began a conversation. And early in the conversation, she said, and so what do you do? Now, I've learned that if I say I'm a pastor, there time after time, time after time, the curtain drops. It just goes pink. And, and, then, and then the first comment after that is, well, I'm not very religious or something to that effect. So I kept the conversation going after she asked me that. I kept the conversation going as long as I could, not letting her know I was a pastor. I talked to her about being a proclaimer of life and this and that, and she thought she had some motivational speaker, and I was all this stuff. And we had a really good visit about, the me- about meaning in life and about the difference between, between happiness and joy and absence of conflict and true peace and optimism and hope. And we talked about all this, and, 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 then, we, and then got down to the, and, and she goes, so, so where do you do this? Where do you talk about these things? And I said, at, at South Suburban Christian Church. And it was like, do you remember the old RCA Victor dog? The, the head kind of tilts, kind of goes, kink. And she goes, you're a pastor. I said, yeah. And she goes, I'm not very religious. And it was like... And then I said, because we had a relationship that had gone on for about an hour, a visit... I, was, I said, I'm not either. She goes, I'm not very religious. And I said, I'm not either. And she goes, what? You're a pastor. You got to be. I said, no, no. Do you know where the word, the term religion comes from? What it means to bind. I said, did Jesus ever say he came to make us more religious? She said, well, I have no idea. I said, well, believe me, he didn't say that. He never said that. He did say, I came that you might have life. That you might have it abundantly. He talked a lot about joy. He talked about peace. He talked about the hope we have in him. He never said he came to make us more religious, to bind us. He came to set us free. Now, all of the world's religions are human effort to try to reach out to something or someone or even nothing. Extinction with Buddhism. Only in our Christian faith do we find God, through the person of his son Jesus, reaching out and coming to us? No other religion 
is remotely comparable to the loving, revealing rescue given, offered to us by God through Jesus. Now, that great truth ought to steal us, steady us against being taken, taken captive by deceitful, empty philosophies that are so, so prevalent these days. Let me just share with you, real, just briefly, how we can be wary. Just be discerning about deceptive groups and teachings. When the focus moves from Christ to another teacher, be wary. Genuine representatives of Christ are not occupied with anything or anyone who's come alongside or superseded Jesus. When the focus moves from the Bible to another book, be wary. When any group begins to downplay the significance of Scripture or distort it or redefine it, sometimes completely dismiss it, then begin and, and begins to substitute or provide some additional truth or supplemental revelation from some other source or latter-day prophet, be wary. When the focus moves from holy living to isolation, be wary. True Christian community is out in the world, not emulating the world, but being a healthy, loving, positive vital example to it. A deceptive religious group will emphasize separation and then isolation from former friends and sometimes even family. When the focus moves from salvation to works, be wary. If the focus is spelled D-O, do, if the emphasis is on doing something, somehow earning favor with the God or the leader or the prophet, scrupulously maintaining some regimen or some chant, seeking a series of reincarnations, believing that God only helps those who help themselves, that Jesus is just one of the prophets or just the best of all good men or a great moral teacher, nothing more, that he didn't quite accomplish our salvation in his death on the cross, beware, watch out. Remember this, life in Christ is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Jesus' death was and is the great turning point of human history. He obediently participated in the plan of God, deliberately giving himself, his life, in a once, never-to-be-repeated, substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of the world. Dying voluntarily for our salvation. Now, the reality of that claim, the reality of Jesus' claim, over and over we read it, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. Paul writes, there's one God, one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus is the way to the heart of God, paved through the sacrifice of Calvary. He's the truth about God. Life itself is Jesus. He is the life, and the life that he's given is his own spirit. He comes to us 
to dwell, to live within us, and he gives us the power through his Holy Spirit actually taking up residence in us. He gives us the power to live the life that he's called us to live out this side of heaven. In an age of pluralism that wants us to believe that all religions are equally true, equally valid, simply alternative ways to one God, we have to simply say that that thinking is absurd. Because Gene Veith says to say that all religions are true means that no religion is true. The only way to bring them under one umbrella is to deny their distinctive teaching. Josh McDowell writes, all religions can't be true at the same time because they teach many things completely opposite from one another. They all may be wrong, but certainly they can't all be right for the claims of one will exclude another. And Ravi Zacharias says that even respect for the right of another to be wrong still doesn't mean that wrong is right. So Jesus' I am declaration, I am the way, the truth, the life, became the watchword of the essential message of the early church. It was what they proclaimed, and it was what they lived out. Those defeated, discouraged, disheartened men in the upper room that night became the contagious communicators of the very life of Jesus Christ. It was no sad memory of a lonely night. It wasn't the recognition of just a historical figure that had once lived and was now dead. It wasn't some unattainable challenge that was given them. It was the living presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that empowered them, lived in them and through them, and that's who they proclaimed. So all of this comes to us seeking our own decision then, really. He doesn't come to us as a proposition that we can endlessly discuss. And he doesn't come to us as a theological concept that we can shrink or enlarge. D.T. Niles has written that Jesus Christ is not a value that we can negotiate or a preference that we can reject. He's the way to be followed. He's the truth to be told and he's the life to be lived out. Now, another way to look at all this is that he is reconciliation. He's the way. He's the way that reconciles, opens up the way for us to have that relationship again with our creator, with God. He reconciles us as the way. He opens the way to that relationship. He's the truth. He's revelation of the one true God. And he's life. He's the regeneration. He gives us life as it's meant to be, life from the inside out, the artesian quality that comes out from his Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us that gives us life as it's meant to be. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Jesus is the truth. We believe in him, not merely his words. He's the doctor and the doctrine, the revealer and the revelation, the illuminator and the light. He's exalted in every word of truth because he is its sum and substance. He sits above the gospel like a prince on his own throne. Doctrine is most precious when we see it distilling from his lips and embodied in his person. Acts 4.12 says it. Here it is. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. 
Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, we, we realize that your message comes down to who is the authority for my life. Who's the authority for my life? From whom will I take direction? From whom will I get my bearings? What's the basis for my belief? What's the foundation for my behavior? From where shall I take my worldview? Lord, I realize if I take my worldview, the basis of who I am and all that I am and all that I believe, if I take that from any aspect of creation, I've begun with the wrong premise. What's my compass, my standard for evaluating my life? Who will I follow? Lord, you're the only reliable source for forgiveness, for meaning, our relationships, our destiny. And Lord, we realize none of, this, none of this depends on any great attainment that we can claim for ourselves. It's not conditioned on our moral perfection or our merit, our deserving of trying hard, trying to keep the Ten Commandments or live by the golden rule. None of that. We simply come to you, rely on you, your grace and your mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his life, his resurrection. And we come to you in faith and in trust of him. We thank you that we can come to you because of him. We thank you that we have life because of him. We thank you that it's not just life now, but life forever. So that, so that death is not a period at the end of the sentence, but it's more like a comma in the midst of living. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that. We pray it in your name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.